Well, dear friends, we're walking through Luke chapter 4 at this time and walking through verses 42 through uh, 44. So let me read these, these few verses. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God and to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. My desire in this sermon is to give us rather an introduction of this concept of the kingdom of God. This is going to be a theme that we're going to see throughout this gospel. It's something that shows up in other places within the New Testament, and it is an outflow of Um, Things that were taught in the Old Testament, doctrines that were there in the Old Testament as well. And so this is going to be an introduction to this concept so that as we walk through this concept going through the book of Luke, we can build on what we've already done here. So there's many of you that are going to listen to this sermon and they're going to think, well, I wish you would have said more of this or I wish you would have said more of that. And my desire here is not to give you everything about the kingdom of God or to give you all understandings or all aspects of it or to completely systematize this concept that Jesus is speaking of here, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. But rather here, it's to give us a framework that will help us as we continue to walk through this gospel. And so we're going to approach this as we have some of our sermons previously, is I'm going to ask a question And we're going to seek to answer that question as we walk through those points, or that point rather. So we're going to basically two questions that we want to answer here. The first is, what is the kingdom of God? And the second is, what is the good news of the kingdom of God? And those are the two things that I want to introduce within this sermon. I want to start with a quote from... Geldenhus, uh, which as we walk through this first point, which is what is the kingdom of God, he makes this point. He says, the kingdom of God first indicates the ruling activity of God and then the divine rule in its saving operation on the one hand and its judicial action on the other hand. And it also refers to the field where the rule of God is exercised and the final divine rule as it will be at the end of time and be fully realized and exist through eternity. So what he's saying here is something that I'm going to try to unpack in this idea. And we need to understand that there are, there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. And there are those that would approach the kingdom of God and they would say, that is just going to be in the future. That is going to be in the great millennial reign of Christ. And in that time, that will be the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God will be ruling at that time. But at this time where Jesus is not physically upon the earth, we do not see the rule of the kingdom of God at this time. And there's others that would go to the ditch on the other side of the road. That ditch on the other side of the road would be to say, well, the kingdom of God is already come. It has already been fulfilled. Everything about it is, has been accomplished. And we're not going to fall into either one of those ditches, God willing. We are going to understand 
the kingdom of God in the biblical way. And I believe the biblical way of understanding the kingdom of God is to say there is a now and not yet. The Lord has done certain things and is doing certain things now, and there are certain things that are promised to occur in the future. There will be an, an ultimate reckoning in the future. And the Lord has his reasons as to why he has not brought that ultimate reckoning at this time. And one of those reasons the ultimate reckoning has not come at this time is so a great many of you could come to faith in Jesus Christ. So a great many of you could be born and could live and could exist and could hear the gospel of Christ Jesus and be brought to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ and then could go on and be a blessing to other people and the Lord could sanctify you and work within you in your life. We have that reason and a great many other reasons. And that's the question we don't really need to get into. We won't get into that why God is doing what he is doing at this time. If you begin to try to get into the whys of why God does what he does, and your answer is not simply for his own glory, you begin to step into areas that you don't have the ability to rightly understand. Will you, as the finite, fully comprehend the infinite? Will you, with your temporal understanding, fully understand God who is eternal? No, dear friends, that's not something that we can do. So we need to understand the kingdom of God and not understand it in the ways in which we understand kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God is not something that is measured in miles. The kingdom of God is not something that is measured with uh, border territories of countries. The kingdom of God is not spread politically, militarily, or genetically. People aren't just born into the kingdom of God. We'll unpack that. It's not spread politically, militarily, or genetically. Let me walk through that first statement that I said there. The kingdom of God is not spread politically. The Lord may use providentially that which happens politically in cultures and countries to bring about his good purpose. He's done that in a great many ways. The, the reality is that the Lord can use a candidate who is a total pagan, who is unconverted, to accomplish his good purpose, to accomplish his ultimate decree and bring it providentially to pass. The reality is we've seen this even in the history of Israel with many of the terrible kings that they've had, that the Lord would use even a very wicked king to bring about his good purpose We've seen the Lord use the sin of Pharaoh, the sin of Pharaoh and his army to demonstrate, to illustrate for us that which Jesus even does for his church and Jesus freeing his people from slavery and Jesus setting his people free and leading them to the promised land. We've seen the Lord use the great sin of Joseph's brothers to save Joseph to save even the brothers of Joseph, to ultimately save the entire world from starvation. Nebuchadnezzar is one that I just find to be absolutely fascinating. Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar. He was a prideful man. He was a man that looked to himself. That's one of the great sins that happens. One of the great sins that happens is that of idolatry. 
And in idolatry, you begin to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You worship and serve the creation rather than giving the glory to the one who brought the creation into existence, rather than glorifying the one to whom the creation itself points. That was Nebuchadnezzar's sin. He gave the glory to himself. He looked not to the Lord. He trusted not in the Lord. And the Lord made him insane. Nebuchadnezzar went crazy. The most powerful man in the world at that time, the wealthiest man in the world at that time, And there he was, running about in the fields as an animal, eating grass. And the Lord gave him his mind back and brought him to his senses. And he praised the Lord. He gave glory to God at that time. He gave one of the most fantastic statements about the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God within the Scriptures. What I find so incredible about that passage, and every time I read it, I stop and I reflect upon it, because it just ends right there. Like, I want to know what happened. I want to know what Nebuchadnezzar did differently. What did he do differently in the empire? How did you rule differently? How did this change in the emperor affect the rest of the kingdom, I would imagine it was absolutely incredible. The Lord didn't think it was necessary for us to hear about that. Perhaps we will hear of that in glory. Perhaps we will see of the great changes, the great reforms, perhaps, that Nebuchadnezzar made. But rather we have, beginning in that very next chapter, the the ruler that comes next, who was an evil one, If you make the kingdom of God, dear friends, about what is happening politically in a particular country on this planet, you're going to put yourself in very difficult positions. You're going to put yourself in very compromising positions. If you're putting yourself in a position where the kingdom of God is only going to move forward if we have the right person in leadership in this particular country at this particular time, you are going to have to look over a great number of sins of that candidate that you're trusting in to bring forward the kingdom of God. Church history is full of this idea. just need to have the right person. We just need to have the right emperor over the Roman Empire. We just need to have the right Pope in place at this time. And you can see the history of those that held such ideas and the fatal consequences that fell from them. It even puts you in situations, we've seen this, I would argue this, in very recent times. There's been, we have the church and the church is not grounded in the ways in which it should be. And she has not been ready in this country to deal with the, the faults in our theologies have been demonstrated. There's a book that talks about that. You can read about it. It's called Fault Lines. Vody Bauckham wrote it. But when the pressure is put on something, that's when you really begin to see where there are faults. That's where you begin to see where there are weaknesses, where it may not have been demonstrated previously. And I'd say the pressure that's been put on the church in this country over the past few years 
and we could even say past few decades, but most especially the past few years has demonstrated some very significant faults that are there. Where you have people that have said, this is the Lord's man. This is our candidate at this time. This is the one that's going to restore order in this nation. And not just here. We could go around and we could find other examples in other countries where this same faulty thinking begins to invade the minds of Christians and people within that country. And you put yourself in a position where you'll fall into unrighteous compromise, where you say, we need to not look at this over here. We need to not talk about this crime that this person is committing here because we have no one else that can fill these shoes. We need to not talk about this sinful activity over here because we have no one else that can fulfill this role. And I'm saying this just so you understand this because I could be saying this and all of you sitting here could be interpreting and trying to think about a particular candidate. I'm not talking about any particular candidate and it doesn't even have to be about this time right here. Let's guard ourselves from that. Our hope is not in men. We pray each and every Lord's Day. We send out to the church each and every week a prayer gram. And our encouragement is that you as a family and as an individual would be praying for these leaders in office. For our desire is that they would see the law of God. They would recognize that this is the right way to rule. Our desire is that they would see that the only hope that exists in this world to make all things right is in the gospel of Jesus Christ through his life and his death and his resurrection. And our desire is that God's will would be done providentially, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And our encouragement is that you would be praying for each of these people. And all different parties are on there. Mainly it's only two parties. But I suppose every now and then there's someone that's not in one of those two parties. But our desire is that that would happen. But our trust, our hope is not in any of these men or women that are serving in leadership capacity locally, in the state, or nationally. Praise God we don't have international leaders at this point. We're only praying for local, state, and federal leaders. So we must not allow ourselves to fall into such a compromise where we are saying, well, this is our only hope. Our hope is in man. No. You can look at the work of Christ. You can look at the work of the apostles in their goal, their trust rather, was not in putting particular people in places. Now there's good reason to do that. There are roles and ways in which people work for that purpose. There are people who lobby. There are people that are involved in politics. The Lord is calling people to Christ. And they are in all different levels of society. And as Christians, they're going to walk as Christians and act as Christians and trust as Christians. And they're going to work as good stewards in these areas. But for us as the church, our hope is not in man. Our hope is in the Lord. Our trust is in the Lord. The other extreme that people can run to as well is they can go another direction and they can say, you know what? I cannot 
vote for anyone as a Christian who does not perfectly conform to the law of God. And the perfect conformity to the law of God is going to be a bit lower than what the law of God actually is, but it's going to very much limit the candidates that such a person can, can vote for. And I will admit that I fell into this myself just a little bit. And I'll admit that a few years ago I voted for someone in a primary for president and I came to realize this was someone that I looked at and I said, this person agrees with me. This is exactly what I believe. I'm going to vote for this person because they believe exactly what I believe. Then I did a little research after that primary and I found that 5,000 people in the state of Texas had voted for this person that I voted on. I was thinking, I lived in Crosby, Texas at the time. I was like, there's more people in Crosby then that voted for the entire, in the entire state of Texas, all the millions of people that are there. And I began to ponder it, and I said, I wonder how he did in the other states. I began to look around. A great many of the states, this man was not even on the ballot. He had not even had the ability to get on the ballot in a great many states. I was voting on someone to run the country that didn't even have the ability to run a campaign. And I had to... I had to put myself in charge. I had to think about that. Why am I doing this? Is, am I being a good steward at this time? Am I, am I thinking through this rightly? And we must understand that it is a blessing to be in a representative republic. It is a blessing to be in a position where you have the ability to influence your government, where you can go to meetings and speak to leaders. It is a blessing to have the ability to go and to vote for these different people. But we are voting at the times when we have that opportunity, looking at opportunities that are there, trusting God with what is there, trusting God with the opportunities that are there. Another issue that happens when men are trusting, when men are trusting in man and not in God, there's the beginning to compromise, to compromise on, on very clear truths, on, on very clear violations of the moral law of God. I want to name a few that I've seen just in recent times. I was really shocked by this, but Senator of Texas John Cornyn came forward with, I know in his mind it was a great idea. He said, we're going to put into law a 15-week abortion ban nationally. At one time, that was a ban in Texas. He wanted us to put this forward nationally, not realizing that he is putting into law that abortion is legal for those first 14 weeks in every single state of the country. Governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, was, was talking over the most recent so-called heartbeat bill, and within that bill, it is made illegal to perform an abortion after six weeks, and they began to ask him about exceptions, and when he was asked about the different exceptions that might be there, he said, look, you've got six weeks to make your decision as to whether or not you want to have an abortion. That's exactly what the man said. You've got six weeks to make that decision. And there's pressure on a great many of these people. There's pressure on a great many of these leaders right now because they're seeing the reality that if they were to actually hold fast to what they have claimed to believe in this area, if they were to hold fast to the commandment, do not murder, 
a great many of them would be out of their seats. Because this overwhelmingly is not something that is in the popular vote of this state or within this country. And that's a reality that is there that we must view these things rightly. You must view your opportunity in influencing those leaders that are there in a way as, that is a stewardship issue. You're not providentially bringing the kingdom of God to pass through these things, but it is a stewardship issue as an opportunity that you have like you would use your money or your time in a way that glorifies God. You have this opportunity here. Use it in a way that glorifies God. I had a man that recently came to me, and he was talking to me, and he's like, you know what? If we could just rally all of the churches in this area, if we could just rally all the churches in this area, he said, I've done the math. Klein ISD is putting forward a bond, and he walked through the reasons of why this bond is is a bad idea, and I'll admit I wasn't real excited about this client ISD bond that was being put forward at this time. He said, we can just rally all of the churches. If the pastors would just rally all of their congregation, and they would all go forward, and they would all vote against it, then this would not pass. We've just got to get all these pastors together. We've just got to rally them all up, and then they can go forward. I said, yeah, have you thought about the fact that most of the Christians in these churches that you're wanting to vote have kids in the public school system. They may actually be in favor of this bond. He said, yeah, but he began to give his reasons why this wasn't a good idea, and I was with him in a lot of ways. I wasn't in favor of this bond. It was a very expensive bond, and I don't think it was one that was wise, and I could drive around Klein ISD and see much money that was already there and was being spent But there's a greater issue that I had with what he was calling me to, and that was for us as pastors to gather together behind the pulpits and then begin to instruct you on what you're supposed to do using the time where we're gathered together as a church to focus on these things that are important. No question about that. But there are things that are of greater importance The kingdom of God is not about a particular earthly dominion as it is being ruled by men in a particular cultural context. You must understand the kingdom of God, as Jesus speaks of it here, the reign of the Lord as being through the hearts of men as it expands and goes forward through the proclamation of the gospel and through the work of the church. It's something that's very freeing to you, dear friends. As a church, it can be very freeing to see these realities. That it's not about you to bring things to pass in a political means in your particular context at this time. Not meaning that you don't, aren't involved. As I said earlier, that's a stewardship issue. As I said earlier, a great many of these things have to do with the law of God, and we should be a people who rightly communicate the law of God and to speak rightly in that area. But it's not about you having the right person at the right time or rightly figuring this out. The weight that would be on you there, the weight that would be on you for you just to be the one to figure all of this out, to figure all things. No. There's one institution 
there's one institution that the Lord Jesus Christ has said will continue until the end. One, that institution is not any monarchy. That institution, as much as I love it, is not the Constitution of the United States. That institution is not shadow groups. It's not secret societies. The institution the Lord has declared will be here until the end. The institution the Lord has declared that the gates of hell will not overcome. It is the church. We can trust that. We can believe upon this reality regardless of whatever happens around us. Regardless of who comes in power. Regardless of what vile laws get passed. The Lord has chosen the church to be the means through which the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed. And the reality is, providentially, in any culture, things can go from being very positive to being very negative very quickly. Things can go from being very negative to being very positive very quickly. We could walk through many circumstances and situations in history where things have done just that, where there was money everywhere and people were celebrating and, and they were just making money a lot of times. And then everything fell, and the, the, the bottom fell out of it all. And evil dictatorial rulers rose up in the ranks at those times. At the same time, we have seen great changes happen very quickly. You very clearly see that in this country. Very clearly see that in the first and the second Great Awakening. It is a great misunderstanding about this country. That this was this pristine Christian country when it was founded in 1776. Ian Murray makes the point that about 10% of the people in the United States were Christians in 1776. I tell you, that is not what I was taught in Sunday school growing up as I went through a Southern Baptist church. No, the Lord worked upon people's hearts and things changed. There's a great many things that happened during the 19th century because of the work that had happened there in the first and the Second Great Awakening. We can criticize the Second Great Awakening in many ways, but there's many things that happened. There's many people that, that came to faith in Jesus Christ. There's many churches that are still around even today because of the work that was done in that Second Great Awakening and the life that was brought to people at that time. One commentator named Linsky says this. He says, The grand biblical concept cannot be defined by generalizing from the kingdoms of the earth these are only imperfect shadows of God's kingdom. God makes his own kingdom, and only where he is with his power and his grace, his kingdom is there to be found. Earthly kingdoms, which are many and various, make with their kings, also unmake them. And their kings are nothing apart from what their kingdoms make them. And we have seen these errors coming to pass, these, this conflation of the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God, the seeking to, to further the kingdom of God through, through political means. And there's some really egregious ones that have happened in recent times. And I'm sorry, I know I'm picking on a lot of conservatives as I'm walking through this, but they're ones that are on my mind in recent times. In First Baptist Dallas, on a Christmas morning service, 
sought to have Donald Trump be the speaker. So who comes out at the time of the service? This is a conservative Baptist church in the state of Texas, a famous Baptist church, First Baptist Dallas. They have their songs. They have the different parts of their, their worship service. This is a conservative Baptist church, not some, some crazy liberal church. And who do they have to come to speak during the time when the Word of God should be proclaimed as the saints of God are gathered? But a former president of the United States. There's nothing holy about that. There's nothing righteous about that. that is completely inappropriate to bring someone like that to speak on the Lord's Day when the saints of God are gathered together. That is not the purpose for which the people of God gather together. They do not gather together to hear political speeches. I had a relative that came to me one time and said, look, we, we've got this plan and we're, we're seeking to bring something about and, and we're going to work through these means and, 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 and I'd like to come speak at your church on a Sunday morning. You don't know my church very well. That's not, that's not going to happen. I don't know that we would do what you're asking us to do on a weeknight, much less on a Sunday morning. That is not the purpose of the saints gathering on the Lord's Day just a couple weeks ago. I don't normally do this and say names in sermons, but I certainly am doing it today. Second Baptist Church in Houston, Ed Young, began to address his church. They made all kinds of news, especially locally. Actually, I, I saw it nationally. I was on a, a, a national news uh, website, and there it was. Ed Young began to address and began to talk to his people about how they need to, to vote these rascals out. They need to, uh, maybe he said, we need to vote these bums out. He's talking about local leaders in Harris County and local leaders in Houston. There's a great many of these leaders that I'm not happy with. There's a great many of these leaders that I've called on the phone myself and shared with them certain things that I believe they were doing wrong, and it was very appropriate at those times. That's not why we gather here on the Lord's Day. Those are, those are methods of men. Those are worldly methods, and this is taking the time when the saints of God are gathered together, and the saints of God are here and we should be proclaiming the Word of God, proclaiming what does the Word of God say? How do we rightly understand these things? And we're robbing people of that which is most primary, that which is most important, that which really seems kind of boring, seems kind of, even Paul called it, foolishness. It does seem foolish just to proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus, just to proclaim the Word of God with the people gathered together, but that is the means that the Lord has promised that He will use. That He will use. Would it just make sense? I've already got all the people together. This is the point. I can tell you this. Every Sunday, I know I'm going to have the most people in front of me in this room right now during the sermon. Absolutely. That's the highest attendance right here, and it's that way pretty much in any church that you go to in this country. So you would think pragmatically, well, that's the best time to go and utilize these worldly methods, to go and utilize these pragmatic political um, ideas. Not so. That is not the means the Lord has said that he will use. There is 
no institution other than the church that Jesus has promised will be here until the end. Even very decent denominations and associations of churches, even many of those that are very great, Jesus has not even promised that they will be here until the end. You will have them rise, you will have them fall, but the church universal meeting locally on the Lord's Day is something that will be here until the end. And you can have others, and we dealt with this just recently. Just recently, this was brought up in a sermon just a few weeks ago. Someone would say, well, so what are you saying? That the church just doesn't need to do anything? They would say that's the problem in this country. The problem in this country is the church just doesn't do anything. Look at the problems of the culture. You can see the many things that are there. Homelessness, drug addiction. Some would say illegal immigration. Others would say sex trafficking. Others would say abortion. They would say these things are here because the church isn't doing what they were supposed to do. There wouldn't be poverty if the church was doing what they were supposed to do. There wouldn't be these great many sins in the culture if the church was doing what she was supposed to do. This is completely wrong. There's a great many things the church needs to be doing. There's many ways in which the church does affect the culture. We must not deny those realities. But you cannot look at the sins of a culture and just say, that is there because this happened here in the church. Sinful man doesn't need any help in walking in his sin. We dealt with this just a couple weeks ago. This had come up on a, on, on a, on a podcast and the declaration was, they said, culture flows downstream from the church. So the idea is if there's an issue in the culture some way, something has happened in the church to lead it to be that way. And the man said this, he said, the existence of transgenderism within this country is an outworking of American Baptist theology and their understanding of believers' baptism, that someone declares themselves to be a Christian and then is accepted in the church and is baptized. And it was, in, it was a terrible argument. It was absolutely absurd. And it's one of the more ridiculous examples that I could use of this. But I'm making this point here to say this. That Paul, when he's speaking to the Corinthians, and he's seeing the ways in which the Corinthian church has been affected by the sins of the culture, He's seeing the ways in which there are divisions within the church as there are divisions in the culture. And so they were bringing these ideas into the church, and they were separating themselves based upon their occupation, separating themselves based upon how much money they had or their, their standing within the culture. And there was this hierarchy growing socially within the church. Paul told them they, they were not to do that. They are a people who had been redeemed in Christ Jesus. They were distinct from this culture. When he began to see other ways that this, the people in this church were living like those in the culture, they were going into temples, and they were acting as pagans within these temples. They, they were ignoring their profession in Christ. He told them to come out of it. This is what Paul didn't do, and we could go through many other examples. He did not say this. He did not say the reasons why the Corinthians are going to these temples is because the church in Corinth isn't doing what she's doing. He never said that. He never said these various sins that exist 
in the culture are here because the church in Corinth isn't doing what she's doing. No, he called them not to separate themselves, not to live in a cloister, not to run and to live in the woods and get away from everything, but to live there amongst the people in that cultural context where they were as Christians, but to be separate there within that context. He did not blame. He did not blame the church for the sins of the culture because there were a great many sins in the culture of Rome prior to the day of Pentecost. The kingdom of God is not spread militarily. I know many of you aren't struggling with this idea, but historically this is very much a, a common understanding. This has been a very common belief of leaders in the past that they are expanding the kingdom of God through borders of, of city-states. And as their soldiers are going forward, the military conquest and, and crusades are in some way increasing the kingdom of God. It got so bad during the crusades at one point that the eastern... the the Eastern Church, what we call the Orthodox Church, began to join with Muslims to fight against the so-called Christians from the West that were coming down. Because they were coming down and they were, they, were, they were making such destruction in the land that they were joining arms with the Muslims to defend their land, to defend their area. The kingdom of God is not expanded through military action. Not politically not militarily. Jesus says this very clearly. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, beginning in verse 33, it says, so Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests had delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. That's Jesus' declaration. Such clear, clear statement there. There are legitimate reasons to fight. Jesus was not a pacifist. You're not to take that and say that Jesus doesn't agree with fighting under any circumstance. No, we understand there's a positive and negative aspect of every commandment. That if we're to understand the commandment, do not murder, we're also to protect life. We're also to defend the life of others, which requires the taking of certain people's lives that justly requires taking people's lives. That's the reality that is there. But we must understand that when we're doing that, when something like that is happening individually, something like that is happening within a local context, it is happening nationally within a context in some kind of a just war, this is something that is not expanding the kingdom of God. It is something that is rather consistent with rightly understanding the law of God and how to rightly apply the law of God. And we see Jesus even telling his disciples in Luke 22, we'll see that in many chapters from now, that he tells them that they should take a sword with them, that it is appropriate for them to have a weapon for self-defense. It is appropriate if someone were to attack them and to seek to take their life that they would defend themselves. If someone is seeking to rob them 
or to attack one of, one of the other disciples. It would be appropriate for them to defend themselves. That's very much true right now in this context. It's consistent with the law of God to have that kind of an understanding. But that is not the means through which the gospel of the kingdom is declared. It's not the means through which it is declared. This is a right understanding of the law. That is not the gospel that is there. It's a positive application of the sixth commandment. And we'll see this as we continue talking through this other times, that this is very much a law and gospel distinction. This declaration of the good news of the kingdom of God is a declaration of who Jesus is and what he has done. That you can be saved by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ and that the law, the, the kingdom of God will begin to rule in the hearts of man. And you must understand that when you understand the law, you're talking about what is commanded, what is required, what, what, what is necessary. And when you're talking about the gospel, you're talking about that which Jesus did, that which is granted to you by grace and through faith. You can see no better place that the Lord Jesus Christ was not expanding his kingdom through the use of, of fighting and through the use of warfare than you can in Matthew 26, where they came to arrest him and Peter takes out a sword. It wasn't wrong for Peter to have a sword. But Jesus was declaring, this isn't the means that my kingdom is going forward. This is something that must be done. And providentially, the Lord used the death of Christ to save his people. If the Lord was going to grit an army together, if the Lord was going to gather together the political leaders that were going to change everything at that time, that would have been the time that he would have done it. He would have gathered his people together. But the Lord used his means. The Lord used some incredible means to spread the gospel throughout the known world. He used people in their cultural context that their culture did not respect. He used tax collectors. He used fishermen. He used people from this area that they considered to be a little backwoods and not as cultured as Jerusalem in this area of Galilee. And he used those people through the work of the Word and through the Spirit and through providential means of even rulers at that time, sending them out through diasporas to spread the gospel throughout the known world at that time period. So what is the good news of the kingdom of God? What is this good news? Let's read that passage again. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judah, Judea. Don't understand it like this. It's not as though the kingdom of God is going in certain places that God didn't rule previously. Jesus is Lord. And I know there's been many, many presentations that are given, many gospel presentations where, where someone is told to, to make Jesus Lord. Just make Jesus Lord. What, you're not making Jesus Lord. Now, if by that you, you're, you're meaning it's a poor way to communicate it, 
but hopefully the person would mean that you're submitting to Christ and His authority and His rule. That's certainly a part of coming to faith in Jesus Christ is recognizing who God is, who Jesus is, what He has made you to be and the ways in which you fall short. Jesus is Lord, Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Psalm 105, beginning in verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, and make known the children of man your, your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is about partaking and participating in the kingdom of God is what we're talking about. The Lord is giving you an opportunity to be a partaker in this kingdom, to be participating in this kingdom, to be granted the blessings of the work of Christ in your life, to have the opportunity to live your life in a way that has significance and purpose for apart from Christ Your life is empty. You can distract yourself with a great many things in this life, a great many things in this world, but they are empty. They will leave you wanting. They will leave you hopeless, for you are trusting in that to be a Messiah which has no ability. The creation cannot be your Messiah. The creation cannot be your salvation. The creation is intended to point you to Christ, to point you to the one who brought all things into existence. So the good news of the kingdom is that the Lord has granted a means whereby you can be at peace with God. And understand this, this happens spiritually. This is passed along spiritually. This is not genetic. This is not passed along from father to child, mother and father to child, okay? Original sin is passed along that way, but not the new birth, not spiritual life. This does not come about through natural birth. There's so many passages that we could look at, but I don't know which one would be better to make the argument other than John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. I love Jesus' response. Pay attention when someone asks Jesus a question, and then look at what Jesus answers many times. People begin to talk their begin their conversation, and Jesus shoots directly at the real issue. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I said to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. 
Jesus is sharing with Nicodemus that which he needs most. Nicodemus is here. He believes that he is a righteous man. He believes that he is a good man. He believes that he is one who is keeping the law of God, at least well enough, I'm sure. And Jesus is coming at him directly in his religious pride, and he is telling him, you must be born again. You must be made new. You must see the reality of your sin and find no hope that there is anything you can do in your life to make yourself right before God because of your sin, either your sin or the sin of Adam. You must find no hope through your own efforts. You must find your hope in the Messiah alone, only through the work of Jesus Christ. That is, that is the gospel message, that you would see this reality, that you would see, dear friend, the ways in which you fall short, that you do not meet the standard of God's righteous law, that God requires obedience, not just in action, but from your heart. And that's not just a New Testament concept. God looks at the heart. God is looking at the heart. God knows the intentions behind even what you do. And there must be something that changes. The Lord will make you a new person if you will but come to Him. And this change that is there within the person is something that we would argue conversion happened in the Old Testament. But here's the reality. You could be born into the Old Covenant. You were born into the Old Covenant because of a covenant that those that came before you had made, because of promises the Lord had made to the people. And if they were obedient, they would be given certain blessings. If they were obedient in that old covenant and how they carried things out, they would be granted the blessing of land. They would be granted the blessing of life. They would be granted the blessing of prosperity. These were temporal blessings. And you had there a mixed multitude in the old covenant. You had those that were in the Old Covenant and practicing and receiving blessings there within that Old Covenant that were not saved. Following the Old Covenant did not forgive you of your sins before God. You needed the one who was to come. You needed that promised one, the child of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And that is, the one, that is where the entirety of the ceremonial law pointed. They pointed at the insufficiency of man in his efforts and the necessity of one who would come forward that God could tabernacle with man, no longer having the sin as that which is separating God from man, as you had even communicated there in the tabernacle. You couldn't go do your sacrifice on the altar in the tabernacle and then walk yourself into the most holy place. There was still a separation between you and God. Well, what was the sacrifice showing? The need of the one to come. The need of the one to come. That is what is demonstrated through that sacrifice. And its continual burning was showing even the insufficiency of these sacrifices and the necessity of one who would come forward. But you had those in the Old Testament. You can read Hebrews chapter 11, and he walks through, the writer does, many men in the Old Testament that believed upon the promised one, trusted by, were saved by faith. As Paul writes, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Moses wrote that before him. 
See, but there's a new covenant. And the new covenant is different from the old covenant. Jeremiah talks about that in chapter 31 of Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins." No more. There's a difference that is here in the new covenant. That all who are in the new covenant know the Lord. They have all come to faith in Jesus Christ. No one needs to teach someone in the new covenant know the Lord, for they all know the Lord. And the Lord has transformed their hearts. That they are obedient to the law of God, even from the heart, even within their desires. And this is something that happens spiritually. This doesn't happen through natural birth. Some of you may say, well, why are you saying this? I'm saying this because this is a great confusion within conservative Christianity. And I'll use this as an example. Very recently, actually on the same podcast that was that was done just a few weeks back where the statement was made that transgenderism within the United States has its foundation in American Baptist theology. A man named Jared Longshore said this, and he said, when a Christian husband has a wife who is pregnant and they give birth to that child, they are expanding the kingdom of God. Through natural birth of a child, he is saying that, as your family grows larger and larger, the kingdom of God is actually expanding. I'm coming forward right now to say that's absolutely not what is taught in the New Covenant. That is actually quite contrary to what we see communicated there in the book of Jeremiah. The kingdom of God is not spread through natural birth. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. It's very Clearly, what Jesus is saying. Don't think that idea. The children of Christians are not born with the Holy Spirit within them. They don't have a special covering of the Holy Spirit merely because one or both of their parents are Christians. The children of Christians are born like everyone else is born into the world at enmity with God. They're not born in right relationship with God. They are born with the wrath of God abiding over them. And the only way that changes is that they actually trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that reality. Don't trust the fact that you're brought to this church every week. Don't trust the fact that you're in a Christian family. That will not suffice. When you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and you give an account for how you have lived, and the laws of God you have broken, attending a church will not be a sufficient response. Being born in a Christian family will not be a sufficient response. 
No, the kingdom of God needs to rule in the hearts of these children of, of Christian parents. As has been said many times, God has no grandchildren. This is not passed down generationally, automatically. This is an individual thing that happens in each person, but it's not just about what happens to you individually because you are saved individually and brought into a community which is the church of Jesus Christ, which is why there is baptism. And the baptism happens at that point after the person is converted and not before it. Now understand this. There are great blessings in being born in a Christian household. There are great blessings in being the child of Christian parents a place where you are brought to church each and every week, a place where the Word of God is opened in your household, a place where the Lord is praised in your household, where there is prayer and there is singing, a place where there is Christian education. These are all excellent blessings, and these are absolutely means that the Lord often uses in the conversion of these children and bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ, so much so that there's times in which you talk to a child, someone who grew up in a Christian household, and they're like, well, I I believe in Christ, and I came to these understandings at this point, but I can't tell you that this is the exact day when I came to faith in Christ Jesus because you had been so immersed in these realities. And dear, dear parents, understand this. You are discipling and evangelizing your children. That's how Benjamin Keach would have said it. Benjamin Keach, uh, one who was involved in the creation of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, a Reformed Baptist that had wrote much in his time, wrote many hymns. That's how he would have said it. He said, we, we, we are evangelizing and discipling our children, so much so that you are, you are raising the children up, you are instructing them in these ways, and when they're coming to faith in Christ Jesus, there's understandings that they have at the point of their conversion that they wouldn't have had if they hadn't grown up in a Christian household. That is, that is a good thing. That, that, that is a blessing. You know, I had a, a Presbyterian that wanted to say, uh, wanted to be cute with me, and he, he said, oh, let me, let me tell you something. You, you you, you don't think children are in the new covenant. Do, do, you, do you let your children pray at the dinner table? Do you let your children pray at family worship if they're not, if they're not converted and baptized in members of the church? I say, absolutely I do. And he says, see, you're inconsistent. Would you let an atheist sit at your table and pray? Would you let an atheist sit at your family worship and pray? Kind of a little hyperbolic there, kind of a little silly as he said it. See, but the reality is, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian, you must understand that all that you do is sin. That may seem harsh, but that's the very real reality. And and if you are someone who is not converted and you do not pray to God, it is worse than if you are someone who is unconverted and you do pray to God. Because you are neglecting something that you are commanded to do, something that you are to do. So it is a very good thing to instruct children in praying. That even, even prior to their conversion, that they can have an understanding of how it is they are to approach the Lord. What it is that they are to do. This understanding is a now and not yet. And the Lord is working within His people. The Lord is accomplishing this as a, a present reality of the kingdom of God coming forward. We see Luke 17 beginning in verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
He answered that the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. For Christ was there, and he was working at this time. And there is a continual sanctification that the Lord does in his people. And there's going to be an ultimate an ultimate consummation in the end. As we see in Luke 13, 29, the people from the east and the west, from the north and the south, recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some of the last will be first and some of the first will be last. Robert Stein makes this point. He says, God's kingdom is both present and future. It already has been realized in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, but it awaits the final consummation when Jesus returns In this verse, the good news of the kingdom of God refers to the present realized manifestation. And there's there's great freedom in this, dear friends. There's great freedom in trusting in the Lord providentially and Him accomplishing His work. For what you must do is not figure out in your life how it is that you are going to right all the wrongs in the world around you. You must not right all the wrongs even in your own immediate family or in your extended family. This is an incredible burden that you could begin to bear if you begin to try to walk down that and bear that. The Lord is not asking you to do that. The Lord has given us specific commands on how we are to live, and that is where we must trust. We must trust in what the Lord has given us to do. The Lord has given us the opportunity to speak truth in those times. The Lord has given you opportunities where you are in the context and where you are. Just walk in obedience and just trust God for results. I, this, is, this is something that I find to be incredibly, an incredible relief to me, and I say it to this as well. Prior to coming to an understanding of the doctrines of grace, when I would go out and share the gospel with someone else, it was something that was a a great stress upon me. For I would walk away from that gospel presentation. I would begin to ask myself, well, well, did I say it exactly right? Or this man made this argument. Maybe I should have studied more in apologetics and I would have been able to answer it. And this person here is in hell for eternity because I didn't study enough over here. And we should be a people that study. We should be a people that desire to know more. And if you share the gospel with people, you're going to grow in this and you're going to get better at it. The more you do it, and the more you have an understanding of the Word of God and how the Lord works spiritually, the more that you understand that it's but your calling to be faithful. It's but your calling to be obedient in what the Lord has given you, where He has you at that time. And it's with the Lord to bring about the results. And I say that individually. I say that within your families. I say that within this culture and within the world that we are to but look at where the Lord has us and consider how we should walk at that time. We are to walk in obedience at that time, trusting in Him. For the kingdom goes forward not through man's means, not through man's scheming, but through God's ordinary means and through most especially the work of the church, that institution that Christ has said, the gates of hell will not prevail against. Praise be to God for that. We can trust in that. We can trust in God's ordinary means. We can trust in the Lord to bring about His good purpose, even in our lives, in our church, 